Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. When is a red bucket not a red bucket? Hmm, I don't know. When it's a blue bucket. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a very straightforward joke from actor and now director Colin Hanks. That'll help break the ice. We'll speak with him later about his new documentary called All Things Must Pass. Also, we'll speak with Carrie Brownstein, member of revered rock band Slater Kinney, co-creator of the sketch comedy show Portlandia, and the author of a new memoir. Plus, T.J. Miller, star of the HBO show Silicon Valley answers your etiquette questions. Opera star Stephen Costello DJs a non-opera dinner party. And Rico drinks the most popular liquor on earth. And I like it, kind of. But first, as at any party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. House Republicans have agreed to nominate Paul Ryan as their new speaker. Doctors Without Borders say they were hit by an airstrike late last night. The WHO is saying processed meats like sausage and ham do correlate with cancer. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are speaking with our friend Rehan Harmansi. She is editor-in-chief of the lovely travel website Atlas Obscura. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this week? I'm going to be talking about how rudeness can kill. And is this a personal... Vendetta? Are you having its rudeness, or what are you saying, Brendan? Um, <laughs> so rude. No, this thing that... if rudeness kills, my barista is a serial killer. <laughs> there, okay, I believe it. What? Um, so, is there science behind this? There is. There was a study that came out from the University of Florida that was referenced in a Guardian column this week, um, where basically they simulated a surgery situation with a deadly disease and introduced rudeness, and it had terrible effects. Mm. Like on the medical professionals, they were they were worse at their jobs? Way worse. Oh, my God. So when you go to a doctor's office, you want a polite one. That's the first thing you look for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it wasn't that they were rude to patients. It was amongst the teams of doctors, kind of a surgeon bulldozing over a nurse can cause the nurse to get their decision-making scrambled. Oh, weird. Rudeness can disrupt thought. It will delay the giving of directions, um, the execution of directions, all these things, which, I mean, it's bad when it's your coffee, but it's like real bad in the hospital. (laughs) Yeah, when it's brain surgery. (laughs) That's terrible. This is actually a good thing that there's scientific evidence backing up that rudeness kills, right? Because didn't we we just feel this anyway? It feels awful when someone's rude to you. Maybe there'll be regulations in the future or something, right? Because like secondhand (laughs) smoke, this is damaging people. I I definitely think that there is value in, in acknowledging that civility isn't just being polite, but will save your life. Take note, France. <laughs> Rayon, thanks a lot for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And thanks for doing it politely. Time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our patent-pending history lesson with booze. Let's start with the history part. Just in time for rowdy Halloween weekend, we're going to tell you about a night so rowdy, it changed the way we describe rowdy nights. Maybe. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. It all starts with a Brit named Henry Beresford, a well-educated, super-rich jerk. At age 17, Henry had inherited a ton of money and an honorary title, the Marquis of Waterford, which did not make him behave honorably. After graduating from posh Eton College, he embarked on a career of fighting, breaking stuff, and drinking. They called him the Mad Marquis. One night in 1837, he lived up to the nickname. 
He and a crowd of pals had just stumbled out of a night at the racetrack when they came to a gate at the edge of the town of Melton Mowbray. To pass through, they'd have to pay a toll. Instead, Henry and company gleefully trapped the toll collector in his booth by nailing it shut. Then they produced a bucket of paint and painted the gate red. And then they marauded through town painting more stuff, including doors, windows, a building called the Swan Porch, and, legend has it, the constables who showed up to arrest them. The next day, Henry and his pals were fined a hundred pounds each for the damage. But it was a small price to pay for immortality. Their civic disturbance gave birth to a phrase we still use today to describe drunken debauchery, painting the town red. Now, some doubt this rampage was the true origin of that term. For one thing, paint the town red doesn't appear in print until 50 years after the incident. But don't tell that to the people of Melton Mowbray. A sign in their market square proudly commemorates Henry's little riot. And they say when the Swan Porch underwent renovations, it revealed splashes of red paint. So that was the history lesson. Now for the drink to go along with it, I am joined by Paul Flight. He is a bartender at the Anne of Cleves pub in Melton Mowbray, United Kingdom, the town that was allegedly painted red. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to speak to you. So uh, what drink did this history inspire you to make? Ah, yes. I had a bit of a debauched afternoon with my assistant manager Ian and my boss, Mike. (laughs) Got rather boozy testing things out for you. Well, we appreciate you doing that. But we came up with um, a cocktail that we entitled the Flanders Mare, as in a female horse. Why is it called the Flanders Mare? Right, in honour of Anne of Cleves. Oh, which is the name of your pub, I see. It was Henry VIII's fourth wife. Henry VIII, he didn't meet Anne of Cleves before they got married. They only met on the wedding day, apparently. Okay. Um, he was shown a portrait married her and then actually saw her and he was very, very unimpressed and he called her the Flanders Mare. Oh my goodness. So he called his one of his wives a mare. Yeah, the Flanders Mare. And the Marquis, he painted your town red and locked up the tollkeeper in a booth. Yeah. It sounds like the upper class are, act, act like a bunch of jerks around there. Um, that could be a less than polite phrase. <laughs> They're a little bit more behaved now. Okay. Although anything's possible with the way the aristocracy works in this country. It's a strange one. So, hey, tell me what's in your drink. How do you make it? Just get a pitcher, Mm -hmm. put some ice in there. Okay. And then three shots of strawberry vodka, four shots of cranberry juice, one shot of grenadine. I see a theme here. All these things are red so far. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Two shots of Campari. Fresh strawberries and some fresh mint, and then top it up with American ginger ale. Oh, my goodness. Now I see why you guys had heavy heads after experimenting on this drink. Well, bearing in mind, we had to make several versions first before we actually got to the one that we decided that we liked. (laughs) Enrico, we should note the Mad Marquis who painted Melton Mowbray red. Mm, Henry Beresford, yes. Yeah, he was also rumored to be the legendary Spring-Heeled Jack. This masked British figure who'd, like, jump in front of carriages so they'd crash, and then he'd run off laughing. It was like a kid of mischief night. Yeah, never let the rich grow idle, is what we learned. They do stuff like that. (laughs) That's right. Or they run for president. It's crazy. Folks, you'll find that cocktail recipe, as always, at dinnerpartydownload.org. 
And now the soundtrack, where a great musician spins a party playlist. And here to DJ today is Stephen Costello. He's one of the rising stars of the opera world. And you can catch him now at New York's Metropolitan Opera in a production the New York Classical Review says, quote, should remain in rotation for as long as people listen to Sinatra. So a long time. Basically. Here's Stephen to tell us about it and play some tunes. Hi, this is Stephen Costello, and I'm starring as the Duke in the Mets production of Rigoletto, directed by the famous Michael Mayer. And this is my dinner party soundtrack. For my first song, I picked Miles Davis' Bess You Is My Woman Now from the Porgy and Bess soundtrack. It was the second collaboration he did with Gil Evans, and it was a new style for Miles Davis as he could experiment more with scales and improvising with scales over sporadic chord changes. I was a trumpet player for 15 years prior to becoming an opera singer. And someone told me, he goes, you gotta listen to Miles Davis. I was like, all right. I went to like, I think it was called The Wall, a record store at the time. And in like their budget jazz bin, I saw Porgy and Bess. And that was the first track that I heard was Bess, She Was My Woman Now. It was just an amazing sound. I can remember just sitting there just so relaxed. As an opera singer, I don't really want to be immersed in opera all the time. You kind of want to unwind, but still have a little taste of classical music in it. So you can sit there, have drinks, maybe have a cocktail, get to know everybody, and just have this beautiful sound of, of Miles Davis's horn. For my next song, I chose Billie Jean by Michael Jackson from Thriller. I swear, I remember Motown 25, even though I was like three years old. I remember sitting up at night with my dad on a school night watching Motown 25 where Michael Jackson premiered the moonwalk. Everybody knows Michael Jackson or they have like a Michael Jackson memory. So it's great conversation at a dinner. He was so such an icon, but he was not like a Kardashian or something mm. where like famous for nothing. He was famous because he was amazing. So my third track, I'd pick New York, New York, Frank Sinatra, just because it just has such a cool vibe. You know, Frank Sinatra is probably the coolest guy that ever walked the face of the earth. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. He has this aura about him where he just doesn't care. It's like, I am who I am, and you're either gonna like it or you don't. You know, New York, New York is just one of those iconic big band jazz pieces that just everybody knows. And if you don't know it, they make up the words. After after a good dinner party and ample drinks, you can just relax and let, let go. I'll make a brand new start of it in old New If I had to pick one of my own pieces, something that I have sung, because in, in opera, it's not your piece. It's Verdi's piece, and it's been around for hundreds of years. It would be 
Libiamo from Traviata. So in La Traviata, it's the first scene, and it's at Violetta's house. And it's the first time that Alfredo is introduced to Violetta. Violetta is a courtesan. And Alfredo is this young guy. He probably comes from money. And he's introduced to Violetta, and instantaneously, he just falls in love with her. Starts the party off. It kind of is like a toast for the evening. It just gets... It gets the vibe going. A dinner party soundtrack from Stephen Costello. He's starring now in Rigoletto at the Metropolitan Opera. All right, coming up, indie rocker and Portlandia co-creator Carrie Brownstein tells us some fairly operatic tales from her new memoir. Plus, etiquette advice from the rudest man in Silicon Valley when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, comic T.J. Miller offers you etiquette advice. Not sure you should take it, but he's offering it. Yep. And later, Rico samples by Joe, the most popular liquor you probably never heard of. Mm. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. That's right. And this week, it's Carrie Brownstein. Back in 1994, she co-founded Slater Kinney a blazing all-woman rock trio that made a huge impact on critics and the indie rock scene. Their record, Dig Me Out, landed on Rolling Stone's list of the greatest albums of all time. Then in 2006, Carrie left the group, and along with comedian Fred Armisen, she co-created the hit sketch comedy show Portlandia. This week, she released a memoir called Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. The title comes from one of her song lyrics. Mm. In fact, the whole book is filled with musical references. So when we spoke this week, I played her a few of the songs she mentions as influences, starting with this one. Madonna was my very first concert in 1985. Mm. And she actually started the tour in Seattle, which is where I was living oh, wow. in, the, in the suburbs. And she did three shows, of which I saw the first. Uh, I asked my parents uh, if I could wear a wedding dress to the show uh, because that was what she's wearing, I think, in that video, yeah. you know, which was sort of controversial at the time. And uh, anyway, my parents disallowed me from that option, which I'm now grateful for. <laughs> So the suburb you grew up in was Redmond, Washington, now famous for Microsoft. And it it sounds like your parents supported you in your interest in music. Yeah. I don't think they were worried that I was going to go down some dark path of being unethical. A debauched young kid. Yeah, I, I I was pretty square. Your parents also were dealing with their own stuff at the time, right? We learn in your book. We learn, yes. That they were attentive and loving to you, but they were each in their in different ways struggling with kind of identity issues. You yeah. talk very openly about your mother's struggle with anorexia when you were a kid. Everything kind of changed at the end of elementary school. So everything leading up to that was actually one version of my childhood. And, and kind of starting when I was 13 and 14, that's when things started to change in my mother's illness, which we found out was anorexia, although empirically we also could have determined that it was anorexia. Mm. That really shifted things in my family pretty drastically. And you talk in the book quite openly about how your mother's hospitalization kind of gave you a sense of identity. You know, you received special treatment from your friend's parents. 
And it kind of sounds like you became a little adult yourself. Something about my mother being in the hospital, I kind of reached out to my friend's parents. You know, I, I was sort of, it's when I first began looking for what you might call surrogates, you know, mm-hmm. just some somebody else to kind of be my mentor or yeah. a, a guide or just somebody that was paying attention to me. Because what, of course, starts to happen when you have a parent that is ill is that, you know, you're kind of left alone in the world in some ways because they're dealing with their own things. And then you're, if you have both parents, usually the, the spouse is also dealing with that. So yeah, I would, my friends were not that interested in me as I was kind of drifting away from the kind of sporty popular kids, but their moms, as I discuss in the book, yeah. really loved talking to me. And I was a very precocious, I mean, I would dare to say a little bit annoying <laughs> kid at that point. So around that time, you also got into rock and roll and punk rock including this band, Bikini Kill, which was an all-woman band from the town of Olympia, Washington, which was just a couple hours south from where you grew up. Uh, Let's hear a clip of that. So fierce. It holds up so well. Yeah. So you talk about a lot of bands in this book, but Bikini Kill was special for you. Yeah, I heard Bikini Kill when I was still in high school, and uh, I first heard them on compilations. There was um, a label from Olympia called Kill Rock Stars, and they put out these comps. And I started to realize that there was this whole scene going on in Olympia called Riot Girl. It didn't necessarily describe the music, but it it described kind of a marriage of feminism, you know, within the context of this punk rock. And as someone that wasn't studying feminism and didn't really know about it through academia at the time, it's not usually something taught in high school, yeah. sometimes in at college, of course. But that marriage was very powerful because it, it kind of took it out of the academic realm. It put it in plain language. Uh, it was very forceful. It allowed me for the first time to hear an experience that, that I felt but hadn't yet to be able to articulate. Mm. You know, when you just hear your own stories sung back to you and there's just this feeling of recognition that I think cannot be underestimated for making one feel whole. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Bikini Hill and then Heavens to Betsy, uh, which uh, Corin Tucker, who ends up being in Slater Kinney with me, that was her first band. They, I think, had some of the best songs and great, great singing. I think what's interesting about your story is you're a kid, you are listening to this music, you're enjoying it, you're following it in zines, but then you just willed yourself into that world. Like, not only do you end up moving to Olympia and getting to know these bands, you actually end up being in a band with one of the people you admire the most. And that band, of course, is Slater Kinney. So you'd been at that point, you know, you'd been playing in some bands, you'd toured the US a couple of times. Um, but then this band takes off. It becomes how we know you. <laughs> and it introduces a new sound to the kind of rock canon. Famously, Grill Marcus in 2001 called you America's greatest rock band. <laughs> Much to everyone's surprise at the time in this very mainstream magazine. You know, and I as I mentioned Bryant Gumble, you know, who was the host of 
the Today Show. Yeah, he the next day he was talking about the issue and just said, "Who the heck is this band?" Like, yeah, why? and uh, that's <laughs> well, why Grill is so great. He was always championing the underdog. But the media wasn't so nice to you. And your your first that you write about your first coverage was from Spin Magazine, which was kind of a painful moment that shows the dark side of breaking through. Yeah, the very first article uh, written about us, and at the time, like a very influential music publication, uh, Spin Magazine in the 90s, was really kind of giving Rolling Stone a run for its money, you know, and anyway, we were very excited to, you know, we did a a photo shoot for the magazine, did an interview, and um, this interview uh, ended up essentially outing me very very early on uh, when Corn and I started the band. We dated for, you know, about a year, and we had never, our, our friends knew, yeah. Uh, but we we never talked about it with our families. We weren't out to them as people that dated, you know, yeah. other women as queer. And um, I remember my dad calling me and saying he'd seen the article. This is pre-internet, so you know you don't get a preview of something. No yeah. one's no one's emailing me, you a JPEG like, oh, this is coming out on Tuesday, so no warning. Yeah, yeah, it just hits on <laughs> it hits on the stands. Yeah, my dad calls, says he's read the article, and and says that is there something you want to tell me i had no idea i had not seen the article yet oh. so essentially without checking with corn or i and neither of us had discussed it in the interview the the writer um mentioned that we had dated and so yeah it was at the time very disorienting to not be given the opportunity to author my own narrative you yeah. know to tell my parents about who i am on my own and on my own terms. Yeah. It, it was um, very unsettling. And that wasn't the only aspect of being in a band that was unsettling to you. Sleater Kinney went on to produce like six albums and received tons of accolades. And eventually the touring life and the strain on personal relationships all became too much. And it seemed like it all reached ahead for you at one particular show in Belgium in 2006. You talk about this moment in the book. Can you talk about it for us here? Sure. I mean, it's it's a dark moment for sure. And I, I, you know, I think so much of my book is is about trying to assemble a, a version of family, you know, to to transfer and, and substitute and, and find a sturdiness that I thought I sort of had with Slater Kinney. And in some ways I did. But at a certain point, I realized that it wasn't enough, that I, I hadn't quite built up the architecture that, that I needed to, to stand upon that there was, you know, still such a fragility and vulnerability. And it kind of all came to a head, a combination of physical illness and, and then just uh, depression and anxiety in Belgium. And I ended up basically hitting myself um, multiple times um, in front of my bandmates uh, before our like show. Right before you're about to go on. Yeah. yeah. And it was, um, it was an, an act of self-destruction, self-effacement. I wanted to erase myself yeah. and I wanted to erase the pain of that I that I felt and, and the sadness and and the loss yeah and in that moment I lost the band yeah you returned to the states and you had a couple of goodbye shows you announced the hiatus uh, and then you took a really big break that lasted until just this January nine years so what happened in the meantime that made you feel like you could return yeah there was a big break and I think you know the most sort of visible and obvious thing that I did was create or co-create Portlandia with Fred Armisen. And, you know, I think that helped me return to music and return to Slater Kinney because it allowed for a kind of creativity that had 
absurdism to it mm-hmm. that had levity that was able to actually kind of look at some of the same situations. I see the seeds for Portlandia in a lot of these stories about Olympia. And, oh, yeah. In the dogma and in oh, the yeah. kind of, you know, trying to assess how it felt to be part of a scene that espoused inclusion, but yeah. felt very elite and exclusive. And I think through that, you know, I was able to return to music in a way that felt really uh, holistic and uh, just reinvigorated. From punk rock to satire, Carrie Brownstein, thanks so much for coming by and chatting with us. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you again. Enrico, another song I spoke with Carrie about was Pearl Jam's Alive. Oh, one of the greats of the 90s. I love that song. Not very punk, Um, I will say. I'm ambivalent about it. I was surprised that she was such a Pearl Jam fan, but Eddie Vedder, it turns out, is a longtime booster of Slater Kinney. All right. And years back, he invited them to open for Pearl Jam. Oh, man. There's a lineup. Which was a weird juxtaposition, yeah. But that tour wound up changing their sound and how they approach music, and folks can hear that part of my chat with Carrie on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Cool. I'm going to wait until after we tape the show to listen, though. Is that all right? That's probably a good idea. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Brendan, I was reading New York Magazine's excellent food blog, Grub Street, this week. And they wrote about this bar there, Lumos, that now offers a big selection of a Chinese liquor called Baijiu. All right. Not surprising a New York bar would offer something obscure. That's true. But here, here's the thing. They said this place was likely the only bar in America that specialized in this stuff. And living in L.A., mm-hmm. home of this very large Chinese-American community, I suspected probably we had one. That's what I thought. Safe bet and pretext for drinking on the job. You've got well it. <laughs> sure enough, a joint here called Peking Tavern has offered a whole Baijiu menu for a couple of years. So mm. I met with the local cocktail star, Carrie Ha. She actually developed that menu. We sat down with a couple of bottles of Baijiu, and she started with a pronunciation lesson. Baijiu. And Baijiu really just means clear liquid. There are all different kinds of Baijiu. It is a primarily um, distilled from sorghum. You know, I've always heard of sorghum. I never really, I don't know what it tastes or looked like. I don't think I've ever eaten it. Actually, sorghum is biologically a cousin of sugar cane. Slightly sweet. I don't know many people who just like eat it. Yeah, I don't think you, you don't see anyone just chowing down on a big right. like, sheaf of sorghum. Store and like try and look for some sorghum. I mean, I know that it is in the mash bill of Baijiu. All right. It's my understanding this is the most popular liquor in China. How popular is this? It is the most prevalent liquor. It is at every celebration. Babies are born, they drink baijiu. You celebrate a birthday, you drink baijiu. Even just like, oh, we're having family dinner and we haven't seen each other in like a week. Let's drink some baijiu. And think how many people are in China. And at every table, there's a bottle. That's why baijiu, they call it the most consumed liquor in the world. So how come I haven't heard of it until this week? Well, it wasn't exported out of China for quite some time and then the aroma and the flavor of it is very different than anything that a western palate would be used to so I'm not even sure people are like mad about not having it here you know yeah, what I there mean? wasn't like, like a clamor yeah, for it exactly like westerners have gone to China and traveled there and then encountered it they like call it snake liquor or like you know like all different weird nicknames I, when I first started working with it and I was telling you know my friends they're like Oh, yeah, that's Chinese firewater stuff, huh? You're, you're crinkling your nose as you say this. It's, it, generally speaking, it's, a, it's an acquired taste. Not even acquired a lot of times. Mostly I get negative reaction from people when I tell them 
that I'm working with Igel. I'm going to say this now, and maybe I will, you know, end up beating my words, but I, I tend to have a pretty decent taste for international liquors. I was a big fan of the Dutch Geneva before. Yeah, the Geneva is, like, delicious. Right off the bat, it's delicious. Well, if this isn't delicious, you, you like, helped develop an entire program of these things. Why did you do it? For me, um, I respect tremendously spirit tradition. And there's such a long history of baijiu in China. The process of making baijiu is like very fascinating. Just how much work goes into it. Because of that, I really do respect the spirit itself, even if I don't love the flavor of it. All right, well, let's see if I can at least respect the stuff and maybe even love it. <laughs> Should we start with the top shelf or the bottom shelf? We're starting bottom shelf. Okay, and this is... Only so the best for you, baby. <laughs> All right, what is this called? So, interestingly enough... Um, when I was developing the Baijiu cocktails for um, the place in L.A. called Peking Tavern, I did a blind tasting, and the one that I chose to actually use in the cocktails is the first one that you will be trying, called Red Star Baijiu, because of its, in my opinion, mixability. Okay, so maybe it's got the least strong flavor, maybe? It's very mellow, like, well, mellow, in quotations, so it's a little bit sweeter. All right, so here we go. Here we go, here we go bottoms up. I should let everybody know that it's uh, about 10.30 a.m. in Los Angeles, and I haven't eaten anything. And we are looking at 56% alcohol by volume. Get at it. It's the exciting life of a journalist. Here we go. Smell first. Smell first. It's it's a little bit like a funky gin is what it smells like to me. Okay. What do you normally get? This smells like toe cheese or like... (laughs) It's not that bad. Funky gin is like a really very pleasant way to say it. Yeah, a lot of people don't like gin either, so maybe I'm... I think I smell like funky gin right now because I drank so much gin last night. I feel like it's like oozing from my pores, so... (laughs) That's true. It could be you. Here we go. I'm going to try some Red Star brand. Oh, that's not as bad as everybody's saying. It's got a strange aftertaste. It does have it kind of like a... Sour, right? Yeah. For me, I liken that kind of aftertaste to it hits you like right on your cheeks like you feel like you're about to hurl. And that's not what I'm feeling. I feel it's got a little bit of a leathery taste. I'm really impressed. Your baijo face, that's what we call it, baijo face. Usually people like grimace and like, ugh, you know, like make that horrible faces. But you are just pretty calm about this. I'm really impressed. Thanks. Do I get a prize? Seriously, you can you can take all the baijo home. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> let's do the last one, which is the most expensive. This is a very tiny bottle that cost 80 bucks. It's 200 milliliters. 200 milliliters for $80 is crazy. Um, this is the most well-known bottle. This white ceramic bottle with the red, it's called Mutai. And this is very high end. This is what people usually give as gifts. This is very umami-ish, I would say. It's so like soy sauce? Is this, that what it's... Uh, yeah, a little bit reminiscent of soy, but there's no soy in it. Uh, this is the one that you see all the Chinese government leaders like toasting with. And it has more prestige than the brands Apple, Rolex, and Armani. So there you go. In China? In China. Okay. Oh, that's a little, yeah. <laughs> that's a little, that actually weirdly has an aftertaste of a rich, funky cheese. Yeah, it's a little bit fungal. Yeah. Like a lot of mushroomy fungal notes in Baijiu. I just made Baijiu face. I took another drink and that time I got it. <laughs> there it goes. So, Brendan, I want to reiterate. I actually found that first bottle of Baijiu pretty good. <laughs> all right. I did enjoy it. Never forget, we're the country that created pumpkin pie vodka, okay? <laughs> we all have our questionable <laughs> booze. Also, yeah. to be fair, Baijiu should be paired with food and not chugged straight for breakfast. Mm, that yeah. was my bad. For that, there's Cinnabon vodka. <laughs> 
Uh, folks, we've got pictures of Rico's Baijo face. It's on Instagram. Our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Yep. And we'll be right back with etiquette advice from TJ Miller when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for being with us. In a few minutes, we will speak with actor Colin Hanks about All Things Must Pass, his new documentary about the legendary music retail chain Tower Records and the debauched antics that occasionally took place in the back room. But I knew it. Yeah, but first, speaking of bad behavior, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. All right. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is T.J. Miller. He made his name as a stand-up comedian. He's lent his dulcet voice to the animated film Big Hero 6. <laughs> and to a ball of mucus and Mucinex commercials. That is some range. Uh, you can also hear him on the podcast, Cashing In with T.J. Miller. But lately, he's earned raves and a Critics' Choice Award for his lead role on the HBO sitcom Silicon Valley. Yes. That's Mike Judge's brilliant satirical look at tech startup culture. And T.J., welcome. Well, hello. And I always enjoy that when you give somebody my CV, like an audience, if uh, yeah. the, the introduction for me, people always laugh. They're like laughing at a man who is the Mucinex guy. <laughs> But we loved him in Big Hero 6. I like dulcet voice, though. You've been getting that word a day email, haven't you, from dictionary.com. We know about it. Yes, we put it. It's public radio. Are you kidding? Culture dinner party. Well, well when your voice gets that loud, it's no longer dulcet, though, TJ. That's no, more that's of, uh, very true. That's and that's deep timber. That's a big part of my comedy is just being louder than other people. Actually, we're, we're going to get to Silicon Valley in a second. But since you bring it up, you've done a lot of voice work. As radio people, we're curious. When did you realize your voice was an asset? Um, the way I started getting voiceover work was improvisation. I'm, I'm sort of an improviser by trade. In the advertising medium, like the Slim Jim stuff I did, I just did some Smirnoff stuff. Advertising, it, it, we're inundated with it, so I kind of feel like it should at least be funny. You know, you're going to have to see mm -hmm. it anyway. But yeah, I mean, you, what I begin to realize is that not many people sound like me. I sound, not many people sound like a drag queen who chain smokes and sings Tie the Yellow Ribbon while drinking whiskey in sort of the West Village of Manhattan. And that, I've kind of cornered the market on that. And yeah, I, you I, own I, that. I owe a lot of that to clove cigarettes and marijuana and there's just a variety of things. Screaming, screaming mm -hmm. at people. Good. So okay. that's, that's, that's your advice to advice actors? Advice for the youth? Maybe yeah, I mean, do that's all right. those things? I am the voice of the youth. That's exactly right. Oh, I see. Literally. All right. Hey, we, I do have a question. You mentioned the Slim Jim commercials. You inherited the mantle of Slim Jim's last mascot, uh, the late wrestler Ray. Macho Man Randy Savage. Macho Man Savage, yes. Have you? Have they told you any stories about the guy? Like, is there Slim Jim lore that you've learned that you can share? Well, I mean, no. They, there's, it's, they're not a very gossipy company. <laughs> ConAgra. They're just the giants that own all of the farms. They don't even tell you what's in Slim Jim, so I imagine I know, right, exactly. <laughs> no, they told me. Really? I'll tell you, it's the paprika. That's the secret Slim Jim snap. It is. It's hard to, to wear the spandex fringe pants of a wrestler that was not only iconic in his medium of wrestling, but also, yeah, I remember those commercials. Yeah, me too. And it was so funny to do the tagline. I had to do the, snap into a Slim Jim type of deal. Uh, and so that was really funny to get to do that. Uh, all right, let, let's turn, as promised, to your far less important work in the Emmy-nominated Silicon Valley. Doesn't matter to me. This is a, so you play Eric Bachman. <laughs> Ehrlich Bachman. Ehrlich. God, you guys. Sorry. Ehrlich, no, that's okay. It's... I just love it. You guys are like, and now, so let's hear a clip of J.T. Biller from... <laughs> 
Gillicon <laughs> Valley. All right. Roll the clip Here's, of Aeroric. We used Dulcet. That was your gimme. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> but let us describe your character for those who may not know. He's a macho man. Yes. He is the leader of a, a band of, of brilliant but awkward tech coders. Your character just totally destroys the stereotype of the nerdy computer guy, though. He's loud and full of himself. He's, he's a jerk and a hero simultaneously. Typecasting. And here's a clip. This is uh, your character playing hardball in a meeting with a venture capitalist who wants to invest in your startup company. Okay, here's my concern. Here's I my can... concern. Who the hell picked out that shirt for you? What? Oh, I see. With the pants. So I guess it's a whole thing. My wife picked this out. Then you married poorly. <laughs> so simple. Here's He's such a great character and so idiosyncratic. I kind of want to believe he's based on a real guy. Was he? Everybody sort of really is trying to figure out who's based on who, because there are these tech moguls that fit into these archetypes. But since sort of playing him, like people will come up to me and be like, oh my God, I love the show. I love it so much. So listen, TJ, at my company, I'm you. I'm Ehrlich at my company. And I'm like, that's not a good thing. And whenever this happens, they are, they're totally high. They're just blazed beyond belief. Sometimes they're in a airport excuse me but like totally high just walking up with kids with them and they're like i'm like you this is my son eric and he loves you in big hero six so it's less based on somebody and it's more you know there's an ehrlich type of person in every industry all right well look you play the most impolite person in the tech industry so we figure you're just the guy to ask some etiquette questions are you ready for these no. <laughs> Great. That being the case. <laughs> no, let's okay. do it. Shoot. Here's something right. from Andrea in Venice, Italy. Uh -oh. Seriously. Andrea says, I'm studying abroad and recently gave my roommate my computer password. Now, every time I walk into the room, she's on my computer watching Israeli soap operas. How do I politely change my password and still sleep in the same room with this person? Well, I don't think it's it's okay to change your password. And I just don't see her being like, you change your password? Well, good luck sleeping at night without me standing over you with a knife. The password was our only bond of friendship. Now we are enemies. No, I, you know, I, I think you ch just change it without telling her. And then wait for her to awkwardly be like, hey, did you change your password? Because the one you gave me is working. And you just go, no, I've been having the same problem. And that's it. And never mention it again. So it's kind of a combination like of it. passive aggression and lying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's it's aggressive great. aggression. You really have a hang of this etiquette thing. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. Let's forge ahead. This next question comes from Cecilia. She sent it to us through Facebook. She writes, TJ, I have a question. Good. If you give the bride and groom a wedding shower gift, are you expected to bring another gift to the actual wedding? Mm. My thinking is yes, because after all, they're paying for your dinner and drinks at the reception, and they're probably in debt from fronting the cost of a new life together. Well, that's nice of Cecilia. Wow, yeah, Cecilia, you're a sweet little darling. Uh, you know, I think, yeah, you're expected to bring a gift for both, and it's good to think of it that way. They're throwing you the party, they're giving you the experience. That being said, it doesn't have to be a super expensive gift. You know, I huh. I went to this wedding shower. I was in disguise as a woman. And I went and I brought this very opulent piece of lingerie. And, you know, this mm. is a piece of lingerie from um, Fr Friedrichs of Hollywood. Oh, and, uh, mm, classic. And, you know, so I gave that. That was like $168, okay? Then I Whoa. went to the wedding dressed as a man, you know, with my wife. Mm -hmm. And uh, we gave him just an old tin cup. <laughs> 
just an old god <laughs> rusted tin cup. Mm-hmm. And I left it there and yeah. I said, I said, every time you feel as though you're falling out of love, fill this cup, take a sip, get naked, and uh. take a dip. <laughs> oh. I then they're kind of like, oh, it's yeah. a sen- oh, this is a sentimental thing. Pretend it was your grandfather's or something like that. Yeah. So don't, you don't have to spend so, so much money on, just pick your present and go with it. And then the other one can be an old mm-hmm. rusty tin cup. <laughs> But, yeah, the old tin cup. Although the problem here is that in the at the wedding shower, you were in disguise, so they don't realize that one person gave them two gifts. Oh, no, my wife was at the wedding shower also. They just, okay. I, I wanted to go, too, because right. I wanted to see all the lingerie. Yeah, totally. Hey, this is our last question. Here's something from Bridget in Chicago, Illinois. Bridget writes, Despite my best efforts, I have no idea what my programmer cousin is talking about when he describes his work. Uh. What should I say or do to seem like I'm engaged in conversation with him? Pick a specific thing that it seems interesting to you about his world, like programming or whatever, and Mm. ask him to break that down like you would for an idiot or a layman, you know? Try and understand Mm -hmm. just one little piece of it. And it's probably pretty relevant. Like, he probably knows some pretty cool stuff. It's just, you know, people who speak that language, it's like the young girl from Venice, People that speak, you know, coding language talk as if you speak the language, but you don't, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you don't know Italian, then why are you all up in my face? All I would like is a pizza, mm-hmm. and I want to know what thin crust is versus the thicker crust, and you're mad at me because I don't speak Italian? I came to Venice to make my way as a visual artist and a phrase maker, and I wanted to do mosaic on the side as a hobby, TJ, and now you're in my face. Take it easy now. Sorry, I had a terrible flashback of my time studying abroad. And it wasn't just passwords I was having trouble with. It was coded language. (laughs) All right, right, T.J. Miller, you figure that out. Thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. I like it. Don't misbehave. Thanks. Seriously, though, do. If you can have sexual intercourse, you always should. T.J. Miller, he plays Ehrlich Bachman, not Ehrlich. In the multiple Emmy-nominated HBO series Silicon Valley, he also lends his carefully cultivated voice to basically everything. And folks, I hope this isn't impolite to point out, but for some, the end of this Halloween weekend also means the beginning of the holiday season. Oh, the horror. That's right. Say it ain't so. It is maybe the scariest thing about Halloween, (laughs) apart from Rico's Ewok costume. So for our forthcoming special holiday episode, we've enlisted the one and only Fran Lebowitz as a special etiquette answerer. Yeah, she's like Scrooge and Santa all rolled into one if they both chain smoked. Mm. So send us your holiday etiquette questions and she will answer them. And then probably send you a lump of coal she made from her cigarettes. Uh Just go to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now... Time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we're schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. Our topic this week, the once-mighty music retail chain Tower Records. And our teacher is Colin Hanks. He is best known as an actor in films like Orange County, in which he starred with Jack Black. He earned an Emmy nomination for his role on the TV series Fargo. And he stars in the new CBS sitcom Life in Pieces. But his latest project is a super entertaining documentary he directed about the rise and precipitous fall of Tower Records. It's called All Things Must Pass. And Colin, it's great to have you. Great to be here. So Tower closed its U.S. stores in 2006. 
Amazingly, there may be people listening to this show for whom Tower Records was not a part of their lives. Yes. Just give us a brief outline of what it was. Tower Records sold music, records, LPs, cassette tapes, singles. tracks, singles, things like that. Founded by this guy, Russ Solomon. He ended up opening 192 stores around the world, and they were the predominant music retailer over the course of about 40 years. Why pick Tower as your directorial debut for a topic? Well, there's a couple of different things. Um, one is uh, I was born and raised in Sacramento, California, where Tower was based. So there was a little bit of a civic pride connection to the company. I was going to ask if you'd ever worked there. No, I applied to two different locations uh, <laughs> and you were rejected. in college. And I was... Not only was I rejected, I was told, look, <laughs> I could put this on the stack, but I'm going to tell you right now, there are like 50 people in front of you. I thought they were going to say that maybe you seem too square or something like that, given no, some no, of no, the no. stories that are told about what goes on well, at Tower Records. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely, it was a unique place. You know, the main reason why I really wanted to tell this story is I was having dinner with an old family friend of mine, and we were talking about what a bummer it was that the stores were closing. And at the end of the conversation, she said, in passing, gosh, I can't believe it all started in that little drugstore. That's just crazy. And I said, excuse me, what are you talking about? And she told me that Russ Solomon started selling used 78s out of his father's drugstore in the late 30s, early 40s. And that was about as close to a light bulb moment as I've ever had. And I just said, that sounds like a documentary. It's interesting to me, too, because I, you know, I was around for the heyday of Tower Records and I collect records. Mm -hmm. I'm a vinyl junkie. Kind of didn't really go in there much because I saw it as this huge corporate chain as opposed to the indie mom and pop stores. But I mean, it kind of was a large scale mom and pop store, thanks mainly to Russ Solomon. Yeah, Russ Solomon sort of created that store upon this foundation that the stores are run by the kids that work there. They stock what they want to listen to, they design the stores the way they want to design it, and they tell the higher ups, okay, this is what we're doing, this is what's working. So it was very much an organization that was run from the bottom up, not from the top down. And of course, it involved the music industry. So you had your nefarious characters that worked there and, you yes. know, questionable business practices and all of that sort of stuff. Definitely not a corporate culture going on behind the scenes at Tower Records. Tell us specifically about something called hand truck fuel. Hand truck fuel was an expense that was put on the expense ledger by the employees, not all employees, but some, mm -hmm. for when the employees would have to stay overnight to put in new inventory. They needed some energy. They needed some energy. And so hand truck fuel was a controlled <laughs> substance that gives you energy. That gives you energy. And not entirely legal substance. Oh, well, no. But that was how that happened. There are, the <laughs> <laughs> there are actual, I mean, you show shots of it. There's a, an actual ledger. <laughs> And there it is as a budget line item, hand truck fuel. You, they were basically budgeting for cocaine. Is it any surprise that with that going on, at some point, the organization crashes and burns? Well, to a degree, I would say yes. But you know what? That's not the reason why it, it burned. A lot of people have this misconception that Napster is the thing that killed Tower Records. And that is not 100% accurate. 
there are a bunch of different factors. The music industry stopped selling singles and they lost an entire generation of kids coming into a store. That's part of it. And then you have, you know, the big box stores like Best Buy and Target selling CDs at cost. That ends up becoming a big deal. Then you've got sort of the hubris of Tower opening up these big mammoth sort of like Apple store-like places yeah. where you need a forklift to change a light bulb, those kinds Four of things. Four stories, some of them. Four stories, yeah, in cities that maybe would not support a big music store like that. That's it. But it's never, you know, because of someone's drug addiction or yes. anything like that. This isn't behind the music. No, it's not. It's not that kind of story. And I mean, look, I'm not giving them the whole pass for that behavior. But like, no matter how hungover someone was, as long as you were doing your job, uh, that was all that mattered. We are sadly almost out of time. Is there maybe a, a scene you could tell us that you had to leave on the cutting room floor that maybe sums up the store for you particularly well? So here's one. There was a promotion in San Francisco that they did for uh, the band's music from Big Pink. And someone had the idea of spray painting an elephant pink and writing it into the store. <laughs> and so they did that. Were the doors big enough? The doors were big enough. And someone rode an elephant in. We, and we've got, you know, a picture of it. And there was this whole question as to whether or not the elephant had relieved itself inside the store. Nobody can remember. Russ was adamant that it was outside of the store. Stan Goleman was adamant that it was inside the store. Russ says, no, I know it was outside because I was the one that was giving the elephant all the champagne. I mean, it was just like we kept editing it and kept trying, you know, I mean, we got this thing down to like its bare bones at like one minute. And I still couldn't get it in. That's what DVD extras are for. Exactly. Colin Hanks, his new documentary is called All Things Must Pass. To find out where you can see it, head to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And folks, that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Next week, screen star and Oscar hopeful Brie Larson joins us, along with TV, stage, and screen star Mary Louise Parker, who's written a new book. Man. She's doing everything. Yeah. So while you're looking forward to that, you can keep up with us on Twitter or Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker produces our show, along with associate producer Nina Patak and associate digital producer Christina Lopez. Jake Gorski engineered this week. Larissa Anderson is our executive producer. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Till next time, bon appetit. Thank you.